You are going to want a Bible this morning, and this morning we are coming to a close in our book of Philippians. It has been a several-month journey through this amazing letter that Paul wrote to this little church uh, 2,000 years ago that still speaks so powerfully into our lives and our world and our church today. And so if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Philippians chapter 4. And if you need one, you can just slip up a hand or got some folks walking around. They will put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along. And if you don't have a Bible at home, just consider that as a, as a, a gift uh, to take. We really believe that, uh, that the Scriptures are God's words of life, uh, His words of authority that speak into every area of our lives and our hearts. Um, and so... We encourage you to dig into God's word. And even as we say every week, even way more important than anything I would have to say from up here is what God would want to be speaking into your life through his word all week long. And so I do hope that our study in Philippians has been an opportunity for you to dive deeper into God's word. Uh, and uh, we do, by the way, have a few of the, the Philippian scripture journals uh, left over and uh, would rather those not just sit in a box in a cabinet somewhere. And so if you're interested in those, they're on, uh, in the lobby on the table on your way out the door. Um, all it is is just simply uh, Philippians, the scripture, and a page to journal. And really, they're one of my favorite uh, resources in studying the Bible, just to focus in on a book of the Bible. So be sure to grab one of those on your way out if you uh, didn't get one already. So here's what I want to do. I want to just read this final passage uh, out of Philippians, and then we will dive in and, and just see what God might be speaking into us as a church this morning and how Paul is ending this powerful, powerful letter. So if you'll stand with me, I'm actually going to start in uh, chapter 4, verse 4, and, I'll, and I will read on through. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Actually, just say that with me. Let's read that together. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. All right, repeat that line. The Lord is at hand. Ready? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. All right, let's say that together. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So close your eyes. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever's pure, think of something beautiful, of something lovely. What's something worthy of praise? And just in your hearts, even right now, with that word from Paul, 
whatever those things coming to mind was true and good and beautiful and praiseworthy. Sunset, sunrise, your kids laughing, a good dinner with a friend, the smell of coffee in the morning. And just in your heart, just thank God. God, thank you for these. And what you've learned and seen, received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Did you even have that sense as we pause long enough with a little bit of silence to remember beautiful and good things? Did you have just kind of a settling sense of peace? Now, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have an opportunity to show it. And not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's say that line. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no other church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, you see, I've received full payment and even more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, this fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so to God, or to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul gives his classic closing, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, they greet you. All the saints greet you, and especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You may be seated. Amen. God's word. So Paul ending this great letter of joy with these powerful words, do not be anxious for anything. He's actually just echoing Jesus's words. Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus says, do not worry what you'll eat or what you'll drink or the clothes that you wear. I mean, we just sang about it, didn't we? That, you know, don't you know that, uh, that your father sees the birds of the air? And if he supplies what they need, how much more precious are you to him than they are? And, and don't you see the grass of the field that today grows up and tomorrow is burned in a fire. And if, and if that, those lilies are more splendid than Solomon himself, then surely God will provide for you. So don't worry. And he closes it with this thought. This is from Jesus still in Matthew 6. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And so it's these words that Paul, as he's sitting in this prison cell in Rome, writing to his beloved church community in Philippi, is telling them, don't let your heart be worried for anything. You have a good God who sees you and who is with you, who has never given up on you. Remember the context of this letter is Paul is, is hearing rumors about that this church, feeling the pressure of the culture around them, is beginning to experience division from within and threatening the very gospel that has made them who they are. A church that is renowned for its overflowing love and generosity, the ministry that has flown up out of that church into the world, how God knit together this group of people from all different walks of life into a community that that expressed the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And now that very truth, that identity that they carry is being threatened. So Paul's reminding them, remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember who you are for each other. And so I pause even now to just remind that we step as a church into the the, the living word here, that that it would shape our hearts, our relationships. That we remember we have a God who is for us who has never left us. And it doesn't matter what is happening in the world around us or the circumstances that we find ourselves in. The pressures of this culture may increase, but it doesn't change who God is. And it doesn't change what God has done for us in Christ. And therefore, it doesn't change who we are for each other, brothers and sisters, with one Father in heaven. And so Paul is giving them a different perspective on provision. And this key question, the question that carries all the way from the first page of the Bible to today, who am I trusting in? I mean, sure, I'll trust in in God for my salvation, but who am I trusting in for my life? And Paul even attaches this word of being anxious for nothing to the reality that the Lord is, is at hand. God is near. Both that he is present and available right now and that he's returning soon. It's an eternal perspective on the eternal nature of God and on the temporary nature of life in this world. And Paul, as he continues, that he's overjoyed, that his joy is abundant in the fact that they're concerned for him. But for Paul, it's this pastoral concern that comes from a place of contentment. So we talked about last week, that Paul had learned a way of being with Jesus, of walking with Jesus, hearing from God, being led by the Spirit to trust God, whether he had a lot or a little. And sometimes it's harder to walk with God and to trust Him and to listen to Him and to follow Him when everything is going well, isn't it? I mean, it's easier when life is falling apart to turn to God and be like, God, I need you. I need you to show up for me. This relationship is struggling. My job is at risk. The the economy is collapsing. There's war all over the place. God, I need you. 
But it's when everything seems to be okay that we easily forget that we still need God. And Paul is saying, I've learned whether I have every need in abundance or whether I am sitting hungry and alone. I have learned whether I'm being persecuted and beaten or whether I'm being applauded by hundreds of people who can't wait to hear what I have to say. I have learned in every circumstance to be content, to trust God, that he is the one that will make sure I have what I need. And so Paul's saying, I don't need something from you. Instead, his heart is that I want something for you, that my joy is about your compassion, not your gift. It's the evidence of God's work in your life. I mean, it's the heart of a father. I know I've told this story before, but Eden, our oldest now, I mean, she's always been our oldest. She will continue to be our oldest child. She is now a sophomore in college, but when she was a, a little girl, I mean, she's probably maybe three. And, uh, and we had gone to... Um, her grandparents' place, and she had seen—I don't even know how she came across this—but she'd seen this Superman fishing pole. Anybody remember those little Superman fishing poles? Uh, it's like this long, and for whatever reason, she wanted a Superman fishing pole so badly. And so uh, we thought this is a great opportunity for her to learn. We'll let, we'll teach her to, to save up her money for this Superman fishing pole. And so when it, she, she would get a little bit here and there, and so. Uh, and so um, she was saving up for this Superman fishing pole. And uh, one day we got in this uh, magazine in the mail that was uh, like a ministry magazine. And in, the, in it are like different ads for different nonprofits and, and different ministries. And, uh, and one of them was, uh, one of the ads was from, um, was Smile Train. It's uh, for kids internationally that have cleft palates and they'll provide surgery for those kids. And so it was a picture of all these kids and some before and after pictures of doctors who had gone into these countries and, and, uh, and helped kids. And, but she was so bothered by this ad. And she kept just staring. She's sitting at our kitchen table. And uh, our, this little girl was watching it. And she just kept saying, kids hurt. Kids hurt. And uh, we're like, yeah. You know, I mean, and we're trying to explain to her, yeah, there's people that help. And she's like, we need to help. Like, well, what do you want to do? And, uh, and so she went upstairs and got her little piggy bank of money, about $12.43, mostly in uh, nickels, dimes, and quarters, and brought it down. That she was going to help these kids that were hurt. And, uh, and so we put all, we, all those coins in an envelope, and, uh, and she carried it out to the mailbox and put it in the mailbox. And I just remember, I mean, my heart was so full watching my little girl take everything she had saved because her heart was to help these little kids that were hurting. Now, we took the coins out of the mailbox and actually, you know, mailed them a check, or, you know, gave them online. But the point is that for her, it was all of her treasure, everything that she'd given. And, and for her, though, she's giving up her Superman fishing pole. In that moment, as a dad, if I could, I would have bought her a boat. That my heart was full watching my daughter give sake of others. And so this is Paul's heart here. Not that I'm needing anything from you. My heart is full because I want something for you. That I'm seeing your, your heart for God, for the things of God being revived in your care for me. And this is God's heart for us as his children. 
you know, it's interesting. The Bible talks a lot about money and generosity. In fact, there's approximately 600 verses in the Bible on prayer. There's just over 400 verses on faith. We're told to remember almost 500 times. And we're told not to fear over 300 times. But there are over 2,000 verses on money and generosity. In other words, more than all of those other topics combined. It's as if God knows that there is this direct, intimate, powerful connection between the condition of our hearts and our souls and how we relate to money and possessions. In fact, as Jesus said in Luke 12, that for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That God's primary concern from the beginning of time has been for the hearts of his children. Right now, his primary concern is for your heart. That we would live lives of joy and peace, freedom and wholeness. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, writes, Do we lack joy? It's one of the great blessings of giving. Giving is becoming like our Father. It isn't just God's way of raising money. It's His way of raising children. And so Paul in chapter 4 says that it's not that I'm seeking a gift from you, but I'm looking for the fruit that may be credited to your account. It's not that he needs our money. But he talks about giving a lot. That God's desire is that we would become generous people. Because one, it reflects the heart of God, but also because it requires a heart of faith. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing actually to this wealthy church in Corinth that has, has all kinds of different problems and issues that it's facing. But one of the things he does is he reminds them about their brothers in Philippi, which is uh, in the region of Macedonia. And, and listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 about the Philippians. He says, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means, of their own accord. This wasn't forced on them. It wasn't out of obligation or guilt. It was out of joy and desire. In fact, begging us, Paul says, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians, is really just reminding them of who they already are, that they're people of joy, they're people of generosity, and now they're getting caught up in anxiety and, and, and uh, division and conflict, and he's pulling them out to remind them of who they belong to and to live this life of overflowing generosity because it's a life of experiencing the heart of God. But notice also in, in, uh, in Philippians, when Paul is writing and reminding them of their own story, that he says that when I left Macedonia, no other church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. 
except you alone. In other words, there's other churches in the region. And when it came time to, to, to meet the need that was available, no other church stepped in except the church in Philippi, which actually wasn't a wealthy church. It was a church that was struggling financially in their own right. And yet it was their desire, we see in 2 Corinthians 8, that they wanted to be a part of what God was doing. It was to their joy that they were giving to what God was, to how God was moving. And so one thing we can pull from that is that it's not natural. That our natural tendency is to provide for ourselves. Our natural tendency is to think about our needs first. Our natural tendency is to be overwhelmed by our cares and concerns. And I know deeply personally, and even just in my, in my own, uh, in our family and in our community, I mean, it just, the, the natural tendency, the gravitational pull is always to come back to ourselves as the center. Center, not center, but I guess the two <laughs> do kind of overlap there. I think about this, uh, this really heartbreaking story that all three Gospels, I mean, of the, the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them include the same story of the rich young ruler. And a story where, you know, most of the time when people encounter Jesus, they leave better off than they were. And this is the only story, really, or one of the only stories where that people encounter Jesus and leave worse off, in a worse condition. Mark 10, verse 17. The story is told that as uh, Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I mean, you know the commandments. Don't murder, do not commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And by the saying, he went away sorrowful, full of grief. For he, the young man, had a great many possessions. We have in Mark, what we're told is just a man. But Matthew 19, Matthew telling the story tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he was a ruler, that he was a high official, one with authority and power. And Mark makes it clear that he was wealthy. So we have this young, wealthy ruler, youth, power, and possessions. And yet he was lacking something. I think it's interesting to know that he came running after Jesus. That obviously he's been running after all kinds of other things, but there's still something lacking in his soul, and he hopes that Jesus will affirm whatever that thing is for him. That he has everything that, that, that society says that he needs. And yet he still feels empty. And I just wonder, even as we read this story, and over the, under the, 
the backdrop of this letter to the Philippians, this, this reminder to the church of who they are and what they've been called to, who they belong to. What are you running after? What are we running after? And his question is on his mind, what must I do to, etern- to inherit eternal life? And in the Jewish mind, that wasn't just, how do I get to heaven one day? The, the eternal life, which uh, Jesus embodied by saying the kingdom of God, this eternal way of living was both the, the age to come, but also the present age. How do I live in this eternal way of living, he's asking. And Jesus' desire is to reset this man's mind on what really matters in this world. And Jesus is so good at exposing any other competing forces or competing gods in our souls. And I love that it includes that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He saw right to his heart, and his heart was for him. And I know, if I'm honest, sometimes we, we, we talk about in the church about money or generosity or giving, and I mean, like, and some that have been wounded by the church in that area, or some have heard stories of the church abusing or misusing what the, how the Bible calls us to a life of generosity. But what I want to keep us Remindful of is that generosity in the Bible is constantly under this umbrella of the Father's heart for you. That you have a good God who loves you. It's not into manipulating you to get something out of you. And my hope is that even my heart as your pastor would be the same as Paul's heart for for his church in Philippi. That is not an ask because we need something. It's an ask because I want something for you. And so even if you don't give to Grace Monroe, that's not the point of this message and definitely not the point of the Bible. That we would be people that live open-handed, open-hearted lives because we have our feet, our, our hearts and souls rested, our feet planted in the goodness of God. So if you don't give to grace, the question become is just simply, get, where are you giving? What are you giving to? Actually, our money always goes out. Right? Like that's just the reality of life. Our all, money always goes out. Our resources come in and they go out. First, got to recognize where are they coming from in the first place. And then the second is to be conscious of where does it go to? Now, obviously, we're going to pay our bills Make sure that the lights are turned on and hopefully we have enough food in the house for our family. We're making decisions all the time about where our money goes out to. And then all that the Bible is inviting us into is a mindful reflection on first, where does it come from? From a good father who provides for us and will give us everything we need. That his heart is, um, his desire is that we would have hearts that are content, that are trusting him, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And then secondly, that we're shifting our mind, which is what he's doing for the rich young ruler, not just simply from what we've received, but from where it is going. How are we pouring out and releasing for the sake of God? And this is what Paul is coming back to in Philippi, when he says that that I desire, I seek after, I am going for the fruit of, that increases to your credit. What I want is that you would live fruitful lives, lives of depth and impact, lives 
of purpose and meaning. That he's redefining for them what even profit is. And he uses this word, this language of the Old Testament, that the gifts that they gave, the generosity they shared, that they shared on his behalf, was this fragrant aroma, this acceptable sacrifice that was well pleasing to God, that delighted God's heart. Their giving, because it revealed their heart. And what we see, going back to the rich young ruler is when confronted with the reality of his heart, he goes away sad because he had much. He wasn't willing to let go of the things that he had. A lot of times in the church, or in, uh, in faith discussions, the conversation around generosity ends up being connected to what the Bible talks about tithing. And so just to clarify on that end, is that tithing, it, biblically, it, the word literally just, it means tenth. Um, so tithe equals tenth. And so we talk about like, I tithe 5%. That's actually a misuse of the word. Uh, you may give 5% of your income, but it's not technically a tithe. But what it's about is that it wasn't ever intended as an obligation. As a, it was intended as uh, a release. That the, the tithe was the idea of first fruits. And that as, uh, if you think about it in a farming culture, and uh, that your wealth or that your income wasn't measured by a paycheck, your income was measured maybe literally by the number of tomatoes that you grew, right? And then you would take your tomatoes and you would trade them for somebody else's wheat, or they would have wheat and they would trade you for sweet peas, I don't, you know, whatever, some chickens. And so as your crops grew, the tithe was to say, take the first 10% that comes in, and give it over to God. Recognize, and it's the recognition that all of it, as the crops grow up out of the ground, the rain that falls, the energy in your body to work the field, all of it comes from God. And so we're just simply giving back to God what is already His. Because God knows that it is a subtle shift in our mind that we begin to think it is by our own power, it is by our own brilliance, it is by our own ability that we are making a life for ourselves. And so the tithe was a means to break this subtle foothold that money and possessions and wealth could have on our souls by recognizing who it came from and giving back to God. And with that giving is also the recognition to say, God, I am trusting you with this first 10% so that I can learn to trust you with the other 90. So that was the point of the tithe. So tithing is not generosity. Generosity is about, is, is I'm opening up my heart and my life completely to God, that all of it is his, and I am open to God in whatever way to give however God leads. Tithing is about God breaking the condition of our heart to begin to believe lies about our stuff. It's a spiritual discipline that allows us to grow into maturity so that we can experience the fruitfulness of a kingdom life. And in fact, it's just the base. It's the beginning. It's a mind shift. And so even, and, and we'll, as we come to the end of the year, and you'll start in the mail probably, whether it's from your college or from different ministries, you'll, you're going to start getting a lot of mail about year-end giving. And uh, in America, that's a big deal because there's all kinds of tax implications and a lot of ministries. I know that at Grace, the reality of the church world is the majority of our 
giving comes in the last month or so of the year, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But thinking about our hearts and our posture to God and just talking about what it means to be disciples or followers of Jesus, uh, to wait until the end of the year and then give out of what's left over is not the heart posture that God is inviting us into. The heart posture God's inviting us into is, God, I'm going to give to you first, and then I'm going to trust you with the rest. And then if beyond that, God, you lead me to give more or to give wherever to the needs that come up, now I'm learning to live a generous life. The principle of tithing, it's sort of like the story of uh, the vervet monkeys of the Kalahari. You know that old story. So the vervet monkeys of the Kalahari, so the, the, um, the bushmen of the Kalahari, what they knew is that to catch a vervet monkey, what they would do is they would carve a small hole, a small hole in, uh, in, in a, a large gourd. And then in the sight of the vervet monkeys in the tree, they would get a shiny rock and they would drop it into the hole. Now, the vervet monkeys are watching all this happen, and they see this shiny rock that they just have to have. And so then the bushman walks away, leaving the shiny rock in the hole. So the monkey climbs down from the tree, crams his fist in the hole, and grabs onto the rock. But now that he's made a fist, he can't actually pull his hand out of the hole. So as the bushman comes back to capture his prey, the monkey will scream and dance wildly and try to break free from the gourd, but he won't let go of the treasure in his fist, which is actually a worthless rock. And God's heart, whether it's in Philippians or Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler or the Old Testament principle of tithing, for us to learn to let go because it's in the letting go that we learn to trust God and as we learn to trust God we learn to reflect God's heart for one another and for the world around us and so it's with that that Paul brings to a close Philippians with this verse and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That the provision of God for your life is in accordance with the riches of God. And there's a difference between saying that you're going to be provided for out of the wealth of Bill Gates. In other words, Bill Gates, he's a super rich dude. And out of all of his riches, he's going to make sure that you have enough. That's awesome, right? He would not be happy about that. But that's not actually what this verse is saying. What this verse is saying is that you will be provided for at a scale worthy of Bill Gates. In accordance with the riches of God, at a scale worthy of God's riches. Now, the danger is viewing this solely or even primarily in terms of financial provision. 
Because God cares about you so much more than the amount of money that you have or even what you do with your money. It's about the kind of life that we are living. Remember, Paul is writing these words sitting in a prison cell in Rome and able to say, my heart is overflowing with joy. I have learned what it lives to live in, with, in contentment. My desire is that you would live lives of overflowing generosity, fruitful lives. That God's desires so much more for us than simply that we are taken care of financially. So we bring Philippians to a close. And it comes full circle from this reminder of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, from this call that they would live lives thinking more about uh, considering one another as more significant than themselves, that they would reflect the heart of Jesus for this world, and then bringing them back to this place of inviting them into a life of generosity and fruitfulness. So for us as a church, as we close this amazing letter, may we also be reminded that you have a God that in Jesus has invited you into partnership with him. That in Jesus, there's a way of life in which community can actually happen with grace and kindness and vulnerability and honesty as we learn to consider one another as more significant than ourselves. And in this place of walking as children of God and as brothers and sisters together, God can begin to shape us into the kind of community that actually makes a difference in this world. That Monroe would be a different city because Grace Monroe was here. Because the people of Grace Monroe learned to live in the reality of who God says that we are, of who we belong to our life together. So as we close in worship, we invite you in each week that we recenter ourselves as believers around the body and the blood of Jesus. That God's heart is one of giving, who gave everything for us. So even as we take communion, we are receiving from what Christ has already done for us, the bread that he said is my body, his presence for us, with us, in us, available always. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, that nothing would separate us from the love of God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. So as we partake of the bread and the cup, as we receive from God, may it also be a moment of God searching our heart. Are there any ways that we need to repent? Are there any ways that we need to release and let go, like the monkey with their fist through a gourd, that we need to open our hand and say, God, it's all yours in the first place. It's from you. How do you want to use what you've given to me? And so, I invite you just to close your eyes.
if you're willing just to pray, God, search my heart and know me. Is there any wayward thought? Is there anything off in me? God, is there anything I'm clinging to that I need to let go of? Is there anything I need to receive from you where I feel lacking or I'm trying to meet my own need? God, is there any specific need that you're inviting me to respond? is there any correction you need to make in the way that I think about my stuff? That unlike the rich young ruler who goes away sad, that God, may we be people that surrender it all to you, follow after you, the only one that offers true eternal life. Let's respond and worship together.